As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. This channel is about theories of everything in the mathematically rigorous theoretical physics sense, but as well as understanding the role consciousness has within physics, perhaps even without physics. In order to have a meticulous and comprehensive understanding of toes, then one should understand or at least attempt to understand the more experiential Eastern approaches rather than purely the Western analytical one. Admittingly, the latter is the approach that I'm most comfortable with, which is why I'm in an extremely lucky and blessed position, since this initial foray into the Eastern area of spirituality is with A.H. Almas. Almas is an eminent and lauded spiritual advisor who writes about and teaches an approach to spiritual development, informed by depth psychology and therapy called the diamond approach. In fact, Almas is the Arabic word for diamond. Given that Almas holds a PhD in physics, this episode serves as a copacetic introduction both to the regular viewers of this channel as well as to myself to the ideas of what at least is demotically called the East. Click on the timestamp in the description if you'd like to skip this intro. My name is Kirchai Mungle. I'm a Torontonian filmmaker with a background in mathematical physics dedicated to the explication of the variegated terrain of theories of everything from a theoretical physics perspective, but as well as analyzing consciousness and seeing its potential connection to fundamental reality, whatever that is. Essentially, this channel is dedicated to exploring the underived nature of reality, the constitutional laws that govern it, provided those laws exist at all and are even knowable to us. If you enjoy witnessing and engaging with others on the topics of psychology, consciousness, physics, etc., the channel's themes, then do consider going to the Discord and the subreddit, which are linked in the description. There's also a link to the Patreon, that is patreon.com slash if you'd like to support this podcast, as the patrons and the sponsors are the only reasons that I'm able to have podcasts of this quality and this depth given that I can do this now full-time thanks to both the patrons and the sponsors' support. Speaking of sponsors, there are two. The first sponsor is Brilliant. During the winter break, I decided to brush up on some of the fundamentals of physics, particularly with regard to information theory, as I'd like to interview Chiara Marletto on constructor theory, which is heavily based in information theory. Now, information theory is predicated on entropy. At least there's a fundamental formula for entropy. So I ended up taking the Brilliant course. I challenged myself to do one lesson per day, and I took the courses Random Variable Distributions and Knowledge Slash Uncertainty. 
what I loved is that despite knowing the formula for entropy, which is essentially hammered into as an undergraduate, it seems like it comes down from the sky arbitrarily. And with Brilliant, for the first time, I was able to see how the formula for entropy, which you're seeing right now, is actually extremely natural, and it'd be strange to define it in any other manner. There are plenty of courses, and you can even learn group theory, which is what's being referenced when you hear that the standard model is predicated on U1 cross SU2 cross SU3. Those are Lie groups, continuous Lie groups. Visit brilliant.org slash toe to get 20% off an annual subscription. And I recommend that you don't stop before four lessons. I think you'll be greatly surprised at the ease at which you can now comprehend subjects you previously had a difficult time grokking. The second sponsor is Algo. Now, Algo is an end-to-end -end supply chain optimization software company with software that helps business users optimize sales and operations, planning to avoid stockouts, reduce return and inventory write-downs while reducing inventory investment. It's a supply chain AI that drives smart ROI, headed by Amjad Hussein, who's been a huge supporter of this podcast since near its inception. In fact, Amjad has his own podcast on AI and consciousness and business growth, and if you'd like to support the Toe podcast then visit the link in the description to see Amjad's podcast because subscribing to him, or at least visiting, supports the Toe podcast indirectly. Thank you and enjoy. So Almas, why don't you give an overview to the audience of your diamond approach for those who are unfamiliar with it? And perhaps if you like, you can compare and contrast it to Advaita Vedanta, but you may have to give an example of what that is as well. <clears throat> well, uh, I teach a particular approach to uh, actualizing the total human potential. And really what we find out if we explore the human potential, that most of it is not conscious, is not the physical and the emotional, that's just the surface. So a big part of it is the spiritual sphere and uh, matter of spirit. So the teaching is mostly about is, uh, how to open up or to access the spiritual dimension of our reality for existence. And in my approach, I use Western methodology, like I use Western uh, psychology, for instance, I integrate that as part of the methodology of how to open up. I use inquiry, which is sort of like similar to Socratic inquiry as a particular method that for me is more important than sitting meditation, although we employ sitting meditation too of different kinds. But the idea is to find out what the hell are we? What's going on? What am I? What am I? What is the world or universe? What is the nature of the universe? That's how I started actually, why I started in science. I want to know what is the truth of reality. So I went very far, as you know, in studying physics and math, until at some point I realized I wasn't getting it. I wasn't, that's not for me. I wasn't getting what, where I wanted to go. I didn't know consciously where I wanted to go. But as I got deeper into physics and also conversing with scientists, and I realized that... Uh, it's a, it's a, the approach is good, wonderful, and very useful. I'm interested in it, love it, all of that, and I was good at it. It it was from here up, you know. Didn't include the heart, didn't include the 
other capacities we have. So the approach uses, uh, as I said, uses inquiry, but uses the scientific method in some kind of way, which means I have, it has to be verified, not by experiment as is done in physics, but by experience, by one's own direct experience, not what I hear, not what I learn from teaching, what I can verify and repeatedly, and then can verify in other people. And other people do, which at the beginning where my friends, my students, was the, the teaching was developing. So, and, but it is what, what develops is a certain perspective about the spiritual dimension. That the spiritual dimension is not just one thing. It's not like you experience consciousness and you know what consciousness is and that's it. You see, Advaita Vedanta, for instance, is uh, a teaching about realization of pure consciousness. To recognize that one is that one's true self is pure consciousness uh, uh, that has no limits, uh, no size, no shape, and that it is also the nature of everything. And that is part of the teaching I I give, but my teaching is not is a, a little bit more nuanced, I would say because that has more detail and some people think of it as more complex. But um, because the, the spiritual dimension for me is not just one dimension. Like consciousness for me is one dimension. Emptiness, another dimension, which Buddhism emphasizes. Love is another dimension, you see. And creative dynamism, what makes things happen. You see, uh, don't, they don't differentiate those that much. I mean, they include them in consciousness, but sort of implicitly so. I differentiate them into different dimensions, and then those dimensions can also express themselves in human experience, individual experience, as particular, what I call spiritual qualities. They call spiritual qualities like the quality of clarity, the quality of compassion. Uh, quality of sincerity, quality of uh, will, you see, steadfastness. And there are many of those qualities. I know at least 40 or 50 of those. I, I don't think I know all of them. They're similar to what's called the Platonic uh, ideas, you see. In some sense, they are the Platonic ideas be, behind what we know, like when we say love. Many human beings experience love. But what is the Platonic idea of love? What is the true uh, spiritual counterpart to what a human being called love and turns out to be a very particular way of experiencing consciousness? So my approach is basically is how to learn about the spiritual qualities which make us be able to connect to the spiritual sphere, which in my work, the emphasis is in presence and ontological presence the presence of consciousness, not just conscious as a function of consciousness, as the presence, the being is of it. And then connects into the more than non-dual, which is similar to Advaita Vedanta. And then 
like you know, the non-dual has more nuances and and then connecting the non-dual with the ordinary life. How is it? How how do we live? If we are, if I am infinite consciousness, how do I live a human life? What lives and how do I live? And that, of course, a big part of spiritual realization of most teachings, you see. And so I teach that too. I work with that. But then I, I leave the door open for uh, the spiritual universe to reveal other possibilities because there are other possibilities of knowing reality, for instance, which freely go into it, takes us back similar to some of the physics, quantum theory, you know. Um, How so? Perspective. Well, let me give this example. If you have a Buddhist master and Veda master sitting in the same room, the Buddhist says nature of reality is emptiness, and that's what the experience, what the person experiences. Emptiness is the spacious emptiness, is what I experience. It is the fundamental ground. The Advaita Vedanta person says that no, the, the fundamental uh, nature of reality is pure consciousness, it's conscious of itself. And it's not emptiness, it's characterized by being, while the Buddhists are characterized by non being. Now, they're both right in my perspective, but each one of them says this is the ultimate. So, how can there be both the ultimate? And in my exploration, I find out that they're both correct. However, if what is really there is the ultimate fundamental truth, how can people experience it so differently? And so my, through my own investig spiritual investigation, the tradition and my experience and, is that the how we experience what is the truth depends on the experiencer, on the, on the person. Different people can experience it differently. There are different ways reality, reality manifests. So the experiencer is what makes reality appear in a certain way. That brings us to quantum theory. You see, the experiencer is needed for the, for the, for the quantum wave to collapse, to be, to manifest in a certain way. Before that, we don't know what it is. So the observer, that's what uh, quantum theory says, here, you know, is, is the experiencer, similar to that, but the experiencer is experiencing inward reality instead of experimenting, observing something external. So I, I, <laughs> I look at, at the spiritual realization as I have what's called the quantum theory of spirituality, which is that uh, that the, the spiritual truth is indeterminate until we experience it. And how we experience it depending it depends on our worldview, our view of reality, depends on our expectation, but it depends on our readiness and openness. So that for me explains many traditions. 
while there are so many traditions, you know, different kind of teachings. Can you give me an example of this inquiry process, this Socratic process? And then also, why do you say that in your approach, it holds more of a preeminent role than meditation? Okay. I mean, I see meditation. I mean, I understand meditation. That's how I started myself learning different kind of meditation, Buddhist and Indian and Sufi meditations. But um, the way my own experience opened up is by knowing my experience in the moment and being interested to understand it. What is it? What is its meaning? What's it about? Where does it come from? So that becomes an inquiry into uh, present experience. Meditation is not focused on experience. Meditation is focused like the concentration, like in Tibetan, you visualize something. And at Veda Vedanta, you say, it's not this, not this. And I say, no, it's not that. I want to know this. What? Why is it here? What makes it be here? What's it about? So I can start with any experience, like an experience of being irritated or experience of being uh, um, hopeful of something or experience of um, inner joyfulness or experience of sadness. And by, by getting into it, by feeling it fully, as fully as possible, which requires the development of many capacities, actually, because experiencing something fully is not as simple as sound. Most people can't experience things fully. Most people experience things somewhat mentally, somewhat emotionally. Fully means your, your body is sensitized, completely open, your heart is open, your mind capacities are open and developed and all that. So, but you know, there are degrees of capacity, degrees of how capable we are in engaging this inquiry, depending how open we are, how developed we are. But it could begin in the simplest way by saying, well, today I'm feeling somewhat um, discouraged. Finding out why am I discouraged? Well, I'm discouraged that this pandemic is never over, right? Seems goes from one thing to another. Okay, oh, I'm feeling discouraged because of the pandemic. But is that really all? Just the pandemic? And find no, not just that. Uh, that is part of it. But then I realize I'm discouraged because I feel I still don't feel completely fulfilled. You know, I mean, it's true, there's a pandemic, I can't see some of my friends or family, but there is something inside me that is not complete. And then I inquire into what is this feeling of not being complete, not being fulfilled. Now, this talking back and forth to oneself, this reminds me of the relationship a patient may have to a therapist, except one is having it with oneself. And I know that you've said that you take plenty of inspiration from the depth psychologist. So is this what you're referring to? Well, you see, the psych it's similar, hasn't it? Similarity to psychology. But you see, a psychologist wants to heal the patient. Here, I'm not trying to heal someone. I'm trying to understand it. I'm interested in knowing what it is. I'm not interested in getting rid of the problem. And are you trying to understand it? 
without an emotion attached to it? Or are you trying to understand it so that you're happier or so that... Like, what is the emotion with the understanding? Are you supposed to look at it as if it's words on a paper so that is more clinically? Or are you supposed to identify with it? Neither of those is complete engagement in it. You see, that's the thing about uh, why it brings my perspective of science is that in, in, in the science, uh, science you, you have to be detached from the experiment. You can't be you know, part of it. The, the observer has to be, uh, the more detached, the more engaged, the more the experiment is pure, you see. And the inquiry in oneself, it includes the subject, the observer. So I, I'm in, inquiring in both the experiencer and the experienced. You see, they're both there in the field of experience. Because, and um, so to, to really, because inquiring into oneself is inquiring into the subject, basically. And so as part of it is psychological. Part of it comes from the Socratic method. If you remember Socrates, would bring his uh, students and ask them, uh, what is courage? And he says, I don't know, let's find out what is courage. Why are they exploring courage? Not because they want to be courageous. They want to first find out what it is. Do, they, do I know it or don't I know it? If I know it, what's it like? So that's the Socratic part, yeah. So it what is not, it's not aim, yeah, it's not aim, not aim oriented. Uh, so because the impetus in this teaching is not the, or let's say the drive for enlightenment, is not a matter of being free from suffering or from problem, but it is love for the truth. Love to know the truth as completely, as fully as possible. Earlier when you were referencing that the Buddhists may emphasize emptiness and then someone else may emphasize pure consciousness and someone else may emphasize love and so on and so on, are these all unified in some manner? They're unified in the sense they're all coming from uh, the same place, but not unified. You see, some uh, Advaita Vedanta, for, they th think they're unified because they're all consciousness. They're all consciousness and they're all, you know, manifestation of consciousness. And that emptiness is one of the manifestations of consciousness. Buddhists will disagree with that, will think consciousness arises out <laughs> of emptiness. You see, my understanding of it is that the actual truth is indeterminate, just like quantum theory, until you experience it. It's not set. People want, it, want the certainty or the security of feeling the, the truth of what I am is here and I just need to discover it. That is how many spiritual teachings say. It is here, you just need to open up, waken up to it. And my, what I discovered through my exploration is that the truth is here, but not manifest. It's not just a matter of discovering it. I need to be ready and interested and open, and then it will appear. Where will it come from? It doesn't come from anywhere. It just comes. It just appears.
So what what is that? When we say where does it come from? I say it's unknown and unknowable. Now is that unknown? Sorry, is that unknown unknowable? Yeah. Okay. Now is that unknown unknowable? What most religions are trying to conceptualize when they use the word God, or is that different? Or is that does that predate well, God? I mean, yes, in the in the monotheistic tradition, think. God is unknown, unknowable. That's how Christianity, Judaism, and Islam take that God. You cannot know God as God. That's what they say. The mystic, like the Sufis, they say you could unify with God. You can be one with God, and you know the God's being. But that doesn't mean you know everything about God. So God, in, as God, from perspective, God is not known. I don't think of the truth myself as a God. I mean, maybe some people think of it as a God. I don't, because God gets us into the creator, this and that. And for me, it's, things are more interesting and subtle than that. That I am something unknown, unknowable. I know I am. I know what I am. But I don't know, I cannot say what it is. But I can say a lot about myself that expresses that, like awareness and consciousness and love and spaciousness and emptiness and all of that. What is the ego ideal? Yeah, so that's from the book, the, uh, the Negram book, the ego ideal. Well, that's normal psychology, Freudian psychology, that each ego has an ego ideal, has an ideal, which means it is constructed around some kind of idea of how you want to be, what kind of person you want to be, what kind of life you want to have. So your ideal is to be a sort of a successful person or your ideal to be really more of a helper, uh, ideal of being authentic or original. You see, these are ideas around that, that each ego has that, that it goes back all the way back to Freud, you see. But I use it as uh, when I work with the Enneagram knowledge and I see the different types as each is a manifestation of a particular ego ideal. What's the difference between awakening and realizing or realization? You see, many teachers won't make a distinction. For me, I do make a distinction, and some do, but I'm not the only one who does, is that you awakening, first of all, there are different kinds of awakening. You know, if you read Gurdjieff, for instance, his first awakening, he says, the terror of the moment, to realize I am asleep. I don't know who I am. Most people aren't awakened that way yet. To know, I don't know who the hell I am. What am I? What's meaning of my life? Why am I here? That's the first awakening for Gurdjieff. The second awakening is to know uh, to what you are to erupt into consciousness. That you know, I'm pure spirit that is aware and conscious of itself. Now, for me, realization means that has become your true self, it has become a constant, uh, constantly integrated. It's not just a, a 
you know it, you walk up to it, you know, you know, you experienced it. What about wisdom? So you're curious about many things. <laughs> you see, you know, Buddhists talk about wisdom in a certain way, that he, you know, but I think of it more in a Western way, wisdom. You know, and if you're a Buddhist, wisdom means knowing what emptiness is. For them, they call that wisdom. If you really know from experience, what is empty, what is the emptiness of self? What is the emptiness of everything? They call that wisdom. For me, wisdom is more practical, which is, as I know myself, as I know um, my true self or my spiritual nature, or my, I call it true nature usually, and and I um, not know what have integrated it, and then how I live it, how I live my life is living from that place, and living from that place, being able to live in that place in response to the world, the world, the world situation I find myself in, so that my response to the situation I'm in comes informed and expressing what I have learned, what I am now. And that becomes a spontaneous and natural and a very appropriate way of dealing with the situation. That appropriate and full way of dealing with the situation is wisdom, knowing how to deal with life situation from the spiritual perspective, including spiritual perspective, without denying the material perspective, for me, is to be wise. That's, as you know, that's how Western philosophy, Western religion, is what a wise person is. Wise is not just you can be yourself, is how you live in the world. You have to live wisely. Does that make sense for you? Let me see if I'm understanding this. So the second awakening, because you refer to number one and number two, the second awakening is more about the perception of a particular insight than realization is the persistence of that insight. And then wisdom is the conformance between one's action and that insight. Or am I off? That's a, that's a good way of saying it, Kurt. Kurt yes. But I, uh, the only addition I will say is not just insight, is being that discovery, like I discover that my nature is a pure presence, which is a sense of being, sense of existence, that is not the existence of my body, it's pure existence. I am, you see, like I am, but I am is the a palpable sense of, uh, uh, Pavel's sense of uh, consciousness, conscious of its own uh, being. It's because consciousness is not a function. Consciousness is a reality. Consciousness is something that is. And when consciousness knows itself, awakes to itself as, oh, that is what I am. I am this kind of luminous, uh, aware presence, aware of myself, and can be aware of other things, that will be the realization. See, the way that I'm wondering about this is akin to 
a tree with branches that all come from the same root. And then when one says that consciousness realizes itself, well, let's imagine that you're an example of that. I don't imagine that I'm an example of that. So just because you have found that out, even though at least in this model, we're all part of the same root, it seems localized to you. It doesn't seem to spread outside of your teachings and, and helping people. So the way that I'm visualizing it is like a branch and then there's a loop on that branch. And that is what is occurring when you say consciousness realizes itself. Rather than when consciousness realizes itself, another way of thinking of that is that all these branches just intertwined at once. But I and probably some of the people who are listening, just because you or some of the other people have had insights or have had these realizations of consciousness realizing itself, it doesn't mean they have. Like, for example, I don't think I've had it. So how does that comport? Is it that it is a separate branch? Because I'm trying to understand this with the other teaching that we're all the same in some manner. And so how is it that if you have an insight and it's, I don't have that insight automatically. Most people don't have that insight and don't have the capacity for that insight. It's, it's not easy to have that kind of insight. It, it has to do with some kind of maturations of one's, uh, consciousness, one's being, one's subjectivity, so, and, and uh, uh, development of one's heart, so that the heart has developed to the point where there is the natural desire to know what I am, that becomes a force that opens up things. And most people are, are more busy with survival and with their jobs and families and all. They don't have the opportunity to, uh, or uh, enhance even the interest to devote to this kind of uh, exploration. So it is a very specialized thing in some sense. That's why you know, all around the world, people who realize they're not that many, the few, you know, and um, because, but it is a potential for all of us because we all have the spiritual nature as our nature. We have the same, all of us have the same nature. And that's one thing, one insight we, we learn. When I discovered, I remember, you know, years ago, when I first discovered the uh, experience presence, oh, I am, I am, I know what I am. And I then felt, connected to all human beings. I felt I am as this conscious presence. I'm connected with all human beings because all human beings are, have that same presence, that same uh, inherent uh, truth to them. So that showed me its potential for everybody. Everybody can experience it uh, at some point, you know, if, if they dedicate themselves to it or they happen to be somewhat open or mature or have had the right influence in their life, you know, there are many factors, yeah. But you're right that, you know, just because I say uh, this is my experience, that's I have, that doesn't mean I'm assuming others experience things that way. So everyone does have the capacity or, or not everyone does? Everybody has the potential. But not the capacity. Not necessarily the capacity, no. What's the difference between those two? Potential is, um, is what you are. Capacity is capacity of perception, capacity of subtle perception, a different kind of perception, different kind of, way, different kind of consciousness that we, than we know. 
most human beings are aware of consciousness and I see and hear and have emotions and sensation, all of that. But all of those, uh, you know, perceptual uh, uh, organs have their spiritual counterpart, what I call subtle counterpart. There is inner seeing, there's inner sensing, there's inner feeling that is not those. Those are the outer expression of it. So one can, some of us have some of those subtle things, but we're not aware of them, so we don't employ them. But some, it requires development, and, and that is what, what I see the role of meditation. Meditation helps in developing some of those capacities. Should everyone have these realizations? Like if you had a magic wand and you can wave it, do you think it's for everyone? Or do you think it's for certain people at a certain time, or perhaps not for a particular person at any time? The reason behind this question is that yeah. I'm sure you've seen this in some spiritual teachers. They think that everyone should be enlightened, awakened, and they may even use words like, like you've used with development, though I don't think you meant it in this way, but as if the enlightened is higher than someone else, which then implies a looking down at people who aren't enlightened. As someone immersed in the exploration of physics, consciousness, and math, I recognize the importance of supporting my body and my mind. This journey of discovery led me to a remarkable find, Mosh Bars. Mosh is a venture by Maria Shriver and Patrick Schwarzenegger and is at the forefront of blending nutrition with a mission to foster brain health awareness. With six mouth-watering flavors, there's a taste for just about every palate, even a selection of plant-based options for those preferring vegan nutrition. Personally, I found the chocolate sea salt flavor to be a delightful, addition to my day, post-workout especially. In fact, I recorded myself biting into a bar for the first time. Mmm. How's the flavor? Mmm. It's great. That was real. If you want to find ways to give back to others and fuel your body and your brain at the same time, Mosh Bars are a great choice for you. Head to moshlife.com slash toe to save 20% off plus free shipping on either the best seller's trial pack or the new plant-based trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers or plant-based trial pack at M-O-S-H-L-I-F-E dot com slash T-O-E. Thank you to Mosh for sponsoring this video. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. 
If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. Well, I mean, spiritual teaching, oh, uh, they have a teaching to help people to access uh, a realm of reality that they're usually not accessing. So obviously they think it's, there's a value in that and, and ha- having that openness, that capacity for uh, subtle access. And, uh, but I wouldn't say that any teaching will, will say everybody should. It's not matter should, it's more like it's possible for everybody. Everybody has the possibility. When it will happen for somebody it's something magical, something sort of uh, like a destiny of sort. So I, I think it would be great if more people are like that, you know, because that will sort of move the human race in terms of becoming more human. Because really, uh, that's another point that's important, Kurt, which is the more we are in touch with our spiritual dimension, the more human we are. You see, people don't know that. Most people know, think I am human. I, I am human because I have a body, human body. I have a human emotion. I can think or I'm rational. That makes me human. For the Sufis, for instance, they say, no, no, that's not human yet. To be truly human, you have to have true heart, which means a heart that can converse with the divine. That makes me human. A human, you see, for the Sufis, is the bridge between the divine and the physical world. And if you're not that bridge yet, you're sort of on the way to being human, but you're not totally human yet. So uh, many people, uh, and it is not looked at as... um, gradation or, or or one is better than other is more like a natural process like evolution you know evolution happens in different ways and different areas and different different ways so we all human being can evolve you know we evolved physically and mentally we can evolve spiritually too and it is it's hard to tell where it's going to happen. Like when my students, you know, come to me, I don't know which one is really going to go deeper than the other. You know, sometimes surprised for some people. After a while, they seem to be they can't go deeper, and suddenly something happens, and they're you know they surprise me how wonderful they seem to know themselves. You know, how they start to experience themselves in a way that's more liberating. So I wish it for a human being because it has less suffering in it. It has more the enjoyment of discovering reality. I mean, you know, you're a scientist. Scientists explore through science. You're not exploring so I could develop something to sell or for because I'm, you know, given a grant and I have... the, the pure science is like you, you want to discover because you enjoy the discovery, the exploration. So when one is awakened, 
you, the discovery becomes the way we live our life. We're having discoveries all the time. I discover about what I am, what is life, what is how a thing can be done in a way that it makes it more real, more total. And it's a wonderful way to live, you see. It brings in more dimensions to existence, to life. So definitely I wish it for people, but I'm not saying everybody should. I mean, it's up to the people themselves, what happens inside them. I don't, for because of that, in my school, I don't go out and try to get students. I don't, uh, I don't try to convert anybody. It's ridiculous for me to do that. It's more like I just hear and I make something, uh, a point in showing that I'm here. And that's what I do. And who's interested will, will come, you see. And they can learn what, what, what I can teach. So, and so although I wish it for a human being to be more themselves, more complete for everybody, everybody wishes for everything, it mean they'll be happier, deeper, more fulfilled. That's what it means. You see. But do I say that everybody should? Well, some people are just, that's not what's happening in their life. They're busy getting married or having kids or something like that. Who am I to say, no, no, you should <laughs> come here, focus, and meditate first, you know? Understanding this twin concept of we should value this, or it is, sorry, forget about the should. This is more valuable, this approach of being enlightened or realizing or awakening and, and so on, and of course, in being wise, is more valuable. But on the other hand, we should not, or we don't want to talk about should. And I, from my cursory examination of the more Eastern practices, it's as if they have a shouldophobia. They're afraid of saying should. They don't want to talk about should, but they can talk about value. And I don't, to me, those two are tied. So can you help disentangle them? Now, I think most path, most spiritual path, they do have a should. They, they, it's not, they don't say it as a should. But they say, they advise people, yes, you should, you know, that would be a good thing for you to do. But usually uh, a really wise uh, teacher will see when they meet people, who is it, who it is uh, their time to learn that, who isn't. Because it's it has to do with timing, it has to do with circumstances. So uh, although it is, valuable but, but the first thing has to come first people have to establish a life that's the hindu model as you know first you become a householder you're married you know, and then you go and find the teacher that's how they've done it you see and not all of them of course go and find the teacher yes this i've heard you mention and i, I happen to like it you mentioned in one of your talks that most spiritual teachers, for lack of a better word, emphasize awakening. And then you said, well, what are you talking about? Most people should feel compassion and love and security. And to me, this is an important point. It's one that I mentioned on, not me, but it's one that came up on a previous episode with Carl Friston. And you seem to be one of the teachers that I see emphasize this, or at least bring it up, though you don't call it this, but this notion of path dependence in physics. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. 
Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Which is that it's not about this destination. The destination also depends on where you are and then how you're going to get to it and the condition of the world. So to make a blanket statement and say one should be enlightened and so on. And I see this, perhaps you do too. Maybe you don't, but I see this in different comment sections of different videos and online mm-hmm. with people saying you're already lost. If you are in the scientific mindset, you've already lost or you will never realize X until you follow some path that I'm telling you. And when I read that, it's not as if it's directed to me. I'm seeing it on other sites. But when I read that, I see that as a spiritual form of, it's like spiritual superciliousness or arrogance where they, and it also puts undue pressure on people to, to uh, perhaps, yeah. perhaps one should accept the the position other people are. And... I, I think you, I agree with you, Kurt, but I think you, some of those stories are taken out of context meaning saying you're lost and you're not getting it it is a methodology methodology it is when a teacher talking to a student interacting with a student to have an impact on them in a certain way sometimes you have to say that but not for everybody you see, it's not, I wouldn't yes. say that about somebody who's not my student, it's none of my business. I don't know where they are, but if one of my students is sort of says, come to me and says, I want to learn this, but then they don't do it. They do something else or they go off on some kind of tangent. I would tell them, you see, you know, you're lost. You don't know what you're doing. You're wasting your life, you see. And that will make an impact that make them then recommit to the, what they said they wanted. I see. And the way that you're describing it is a much more compassionate, loving, amiable approach than some of what I see. And I'm not, and you're not this. I'm just saying that this is some of what I see with people adamantly claiming it, exclamation points, as if they're fearfully commenting about how one should never feel fear. And there's a bit of derision in it too. There's a bit of, yeah, oh, look at you, you little, oh, little one, you have no idea. And I'm the one that understands this. And if you only could see it from my point of view... There's a bit of condescension in that. I don't think I don't think the Buddha would have talked like that. You know, but I agree with you. There are people who talk like that, but that's, you see, to be spiritually realized, you're naturally compassionate and uh, loving, and compassion 
and includes attunement, appropriateness. Can you expound on that attunement? I mean, attunement means I relate to a human being depending on who and where they are, what they are, what they're into, what their interests, what their orientation. I'm not, you know, I'm attuned to it and I speak to that. I, I don't just lay on my value system on them. And that is, if somebody doesn't express themselves that way, I will question their realization. Great. This is something that I've wondered too, because it's difficult for me as someone who's being introduced to this in many ways to discern who is enlightened from who is not and what that word means. And one of the rules of thumb or the litmus tests that I use, I encourage people to send me their theories of everything. That's the name of the channel. And the, yeah. one of the reasons is I don't know what is true. So let me see even what is ordinarily considered to be fringe or woo, quote unquote woo. Perhaps it's not because today's science was 100 years ago's woo and so on. Yeah. Though I see sometimes people, they're not as humble and tentative as I believe that they should be when they're presenting their toe, for example, their their spiritual theory of everything. You see, yeah, the way I understand spiritualization, the spiritualization, if somebody has realized their expression in the world should come through what's called the virtues. You know, the which is like humility, serenity, courage, you know, uh, love, things like that. If somebody doesn't express themselves that way, what are they expressing? You know? So then is that okay when I am trying to make a quick assessment because there are probably 1,000 theories of everything and it's difficult when each person is putting up their hand saying, I have the toe, you have no idea, I have the toe, you don't understand, I can't even be wrong. Is one of the ways that I could perform a cursory yes or no to investigate further is if are they being inimical and boisterous and pushing it? And if so, perhaps that's that implies a bit of attachment and fear and maybe they lack an understanding of how to come across lovingly. If one has to thrust one's toe, then... Well, it's a, it's a different stage. You see, we haven't got to all the stages yet. There is a realization. After realization, there is what I call actualization. Actualization is what you, ends up being in wisdom. Actualization means you live what you realized. You don't just experience it. That is another stage of development. It doesn't automatically happen through awakening and realization. Earlier when we were talking about wisdom, I would have equated wisdom and that definition of actualization. So are those two different yes. in your mind? Yes. Yeah, I, I agree with you. They, they are similar thing, yes. So that's interesting, because to me, I've seen wise people who wouldn't claim to have any of these insights. So that means that one can be wise without being realized, and one can be realized without being wise. And at least for me as this creature who's still perhaps asleep, I tend to prefer the wise. I tend to prefer the wise. Just because the wise, they're more loving, I heed their message, you seem extremely wise, and I don't know, am I wrong to prefer that? Should, or should I have no preference with regard to this? It's just, it's so difficult for me to tell which messages are correct. The Dalai Lama, to me, exudes compassion and serenity. Yes, and he's humble too. Right. He's saying, I'm still practicing, I'm still learning. Yes, he's not commenting with yeah, within a moderate use of capitalization. You know, I'm done. He doesn't do that. You know, that's, that's, that's the real wisdom. That's why I like Raja Penrose. You like? 
You know, I like it. Yes, yes, yeah, because yeah. his relationship to his theories is like that. Like his, his he talked about his theory of consciousness, as you know, he has his theory of consciousness that he has developed of microtubules and all that. But then he he says, well, will you say that is really the truth? He'll say, well, no, I think we are very far away from knowing what consciousness is. So he sees it as his contribution toward going that way. He doesn't see it, that's it. While many other people who have fear of consciousness, they think that's it. I remember meeting, you know, one time with several scientists and neuroscientists who each one has their theory of consciousness, one of the major theories of consciousness. And had, you know, we had some kind of a conference, whatever, but then at some point we met uh, privately and, and we were trying to say, how are we going to communicate those theories of consciousness and make them more accept, acceptable to... Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Larger scientific community. And I remember discussing it with them and and. And one of my ideas that each one had their theory and very different, you know, and we're all good. And, and I said, well, you know, to really the scientific community, because there's a consensus kind of science the way we have, and uh, you, you, you can't just give a big theory with all kind of assumptions and all kind of unknown thing and expect the scientific community to adopt it easily. I said, why not just give little thing at a time? You know, put one thing in a small thing and see how people respond. If it is more accepted, then you can add more. They all refused. They said, no, I want to put out my theory. Everybody wanted their theory to be it. Because <laughs> so part of it is hubris, part of it I think is sort of arrogance, as you say. But part of it, part of it, human nature partly is like, I want to be right, you know. Each one of them is convinced that they're right. That's why I say I like Roger Penrod. He's not convinced he's right. He knows he's an approximation. 
Many of the others don't believe that way. They think they got it. <laughs> I want to tell you about an experience I had. So some people say, and I don't, maybe I won't include this in the in the final, so I'll try and be quick. But some people say, don't be so, be open-minded, but not so open-minded that your head falls out. I don't like that phrase because to me, I like being, because to me, the phrase so open-minded that your head falls out means that they've already placed a limit. And if I'm investigating this whole field and I don't know what's true, I can't already say no to this. I have to investigate it and give it its due. So I tend to take, I, th I think I tend to take on these theories of everything a bit too seriously. And I would have never said that before. I would have said, so here's an example. When I was interviewing someone named Thomas Campbell, who has my big toe, he in his book, which firstly, it's, a th it's like three Bibles, his one book. So I was like, okay, let me read all of that. Let me give it its due. It's called toe. It's called my big toe. And then second, he said, you need to meditate for at least three months in order to fully get this. So I'm like, okay, before I interview him, I'm going to meditate. I'm going to try this. And, and I do this with almost each guest. However, about three or so weeks ago, I had, a, I had an experience that was probably the most terrifying experience of my entire life. The more, more terrifying. And I've had some terrifying experiences before. I, and it wasn't on a psychedelic, though it, though it could be induced by something like that, which we can talk about afterward. Yeah. It, it, it was an experience. I was in bed with my wife and my, and I thought, I, and I just had this real, could I be all that is? Like solipsism. And that, and I, but, and I've always entertained solipsism, or I would have said I entertained it, but I analytically entertained it. And that was the first time I experientially entertained it. And it was the most terrifying thought. I'm still recovering from it. Like even talking with you, I'm uh, some of what you say triggers me. Some of what anyone in the spiritual teachings say trigger me right now because I'm hypersensitive from that moment. It's almost like PTSD. It's so it's too recent, and it was so terrifying that it was so absolutely terrifying. To call it a panic attack would be like I would have prayed for five panic attacks rather than that. <laughs> I see. That's why you call it ter terrifying, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I remember, so this is the part that I may take out. So whoever ever's editing this, yeah, contact me, and then we'll, I'll tell you what to keep and what to keep out. I, I am, I'm extremely open to God, and I would have never said that before because I'm atheistic until about two years ago or three years ago. However, that was the only time in like I was on. The, I felt like I was on the brink of insanity. That there, if I had realized that, I would be in the mental hospital, thinking that I have the truth. But everyone else putting me. It was so terrible to look at my wife and think, "Is this a creation in my head? How ungrateful am I? How selfish am I that I would think that? How embarrassed am I?" But at the same time, that could be real. Oh my gosh, looking at her and thinking that she's looking at me from her point of view behind her eyes. Like <laughs> I love my husband, but then to for her to even think. Is my husband, my husband doesn't think I'm real? What the heck? Anyway, then uh, then a commanding voice came to me, a commanding, commanding, commanding voice. And I don't want to talk about this. This is why I may want to take this out. But And it was more certain than any single thing in my entire life. And it was this commanding voice that said, Kurt, I, I don't even remember what it said. But part of it was, Kurt, you, you've developed your thought so much. You don't, you've. Don't think of yourself as someone who's analytical. You're extremely analytical. And look at what this has led you to. Feel yeah. more. Ground yourself in this world. And that the belief in this world, the belief in the reality of this world is the same as belief in me. It's the same. You don't see how it's the same right now. And that's fine. But it is the same. So by you even feeling this solipsistic experience, it's 
it's almost like a slap in the face to me. That was the only thing that kept me grounded was this deep, profound belief. Anyway, I wanted to tell you about that experience. I know whoever's editing this is going to have such a huge time, hard time, but, but can you let me know what you think and how you would, how you approach this? You know, I, I remember having similar experience to yours. One time I remember some years ago, how I got up, woke up from sleep, woke up my wife who was leaving with me and told her, you know, you're a figment of my imagination. Because that's how I was experiencing it. I think. But that is one way of experiencing things, which we could call a solipsistic. But, you know, in the morning, I, I was still experiencing that I am everything. How I, I, at the same time, my wife is real. She has her own experience. So, and and then you talk about God, and I'm, I mean, I use the, the language of God sometimes, divine or God, and sometimes called spiritual nature or true nature, which is, or the ground of spirituality. Um, but it is, I think you were into something, and you call it solipsism. But I mean, that's, that's what all Advaita Vedanta is about. That the person realizes I am consciousness and the consciousness is everything, so I am everything. Everything is appearing in my mind, but it's not the individual mind, it's the, the big mind, the, the, you know, the boundless, the infinite consciousness. Everything is in that. And so if you take it as our individual mind, that, that can bring in the question of solipsism. How can one like myself, who was extremely terrified of that individualistic mind, not come to that conclusion? Like, what can I do to feel ease? Because even you talking about this right now, I feel almost like I'm about to have a panic attack in some way, or a pang of anxiety. But at the same time, I don't want you to see this is so tricky, because I feel like by saying that you're feeling that you felt the terror. I mean, I felt terror many times. And, And the terror is the transition from one dimension to another. There is always a terror because you don't know what's going to happen. Your whole world is going to disappear. You don't know what's going to take its place. And and for me, for the spiritual path, for spiritual practice and inquiry especially, is to welcome the terror and understand it. Let it be as one natural response to what's happening. Integrate it. What helped me, which was the only thing that helped me, was I was looking up. I think that what I had was, or at least what I started to suffer from afterward was obsessive thoughts that this was what I would just, I would look around and I'd be derealized. I wouldn't feel like this was all real at all. And then I looked up what does cognitive behavioral therapy have to say about this. And there was something called acceptance therapy where you accept the thought rather than trying to avoid and run from it. However, acceptance is not the same as allowing it to be true. It's different. And I don't know how to articulate the difference, but it's, it's almost like saying, okay, I accept that I may think this and I just accept, but I don't entertain. No, I think you, you are trying to put into words something that is not mental. When you say acceptance, I use the word acceptance, but but really acceptance as a spiritual, uh, as a quality of pure consciousness is not saying yes to something. It is being, is allowing it to be. 
without rejection and without acceptance. So it's a non-rejection. So acceptance, acceptance doesn't mean I take it on as true and that's it. No, acceptance means let it be as it is. Well, let's find out what it is, you know, and let it show itself. You see, I, I don't accept and I don't reject what, what I experience. And that, yeah, go ahead. Can you tell me about that story about the man who had a stash of water and yes. he felt like the main water source was vitiated and so he didn't want to drink from it? Can you tell that story and the moral behind it? Yeah, yeah. When the waters were changed, that's what it's called. That's a Sufi story, I think. I don't know its origin. But that... Um, what I remember is that uh, uh, man who was living in some kind of a, a village or something and and uh, and I don't remember the part where he realized that uh, um, the water is going to be changed. When it gets changed, people drink from it, they'll forget who they are. So he collected some of the water for himself, you see, before it changed. Mm -hmm. And then people were drinking the water, they all became sort of forgot who they are. He was still awake. But then you said that the point was that it was too much for him? Well, and then there is the quality, yeah. How, how is he going to live by himself? He, he knows reality and everybody else or think reality is something else. So he chose to drink from the main source afterwards? Uh, yeah, that's the story. He couldn't handle it and he went and drank the new water. See, I think this is part of what is also can be dangerous about some spiritual teachings is that there's the social pressure that seems unacknowledged because we use terms like they couldn't handle it and then we culturally have a norm that no you should be able to handle so and so so if you can't handle it there's something wrong with you i constantly say this that i'm not a truth seeker i'm a truth seeker of how much i can handle and i'm a coward because i'm afraid of what could be true but at the same time i used to feel extremely bad about that i used to until about three weeks ago when i say you know what kurt that's how you are. That's it. That's fine. Just accept it. I don't think that I'm one of those people that's meant to have that realization. Well, I, think yeah, would... I don't know about that. But you see, I, I myself see that many people will be afraid to see certain truth. Most people will be afraid of seeing it. It will be terrifying for them. But I don't think that, I don't, that doesn't make me think I don't want to talk to them. I don't relate with them as equals. I have friends. You know, <laughs> I mean, many of my friends are, you know, people don't not know me, don't understand, don't know who I am. They don't see me as me, the way I know myself. It's fine with me. And I don't have a judgment of them. Everybody is, everybody has sort of, let's say, a line of evolution for them. That is sort of part of their destiny, part of their, you know, well, what's, 
happening in their soul and people are different that way so i mean you come back to this whether there is a judgment whether there is a hierarchy and uh, you know right. values and stuff like that and it's true i mean the spiritual teaching sometimes they do have hierarchy of different stages for instance in the path but that that is in the path itself you are in the path or in the spiritual school there, there are stages and, so, and some teaching have stages some teaching don't but that doesn't mean the wise the wise of that school are judging the people outside of their school as you know less than or anything like that you see i think that i was far too egotistical before in my adoption of theories of everything by thinking that I could find the truth and I could have these realizations if they're in fact realizations like I would investigate it. But now I think that my contribution is to help others with their journey one step rather than taking them all the way and taking myself all the way. I think I've been humbled by this experience. So humbled in the humiliating sense, in the hurtful sense, but in the salutary sense too, that I think my role is to not have realizations, at least right now, and to... Perhaps if it's anything positive, maybe I can help other people with the putting yeah, one foot forward. Had, you already had some. You just told me about something experience you had. And it just brought fear, and the fear is not metabolized. If if you metabolize the fear, then my you might be able to have that experience and have more understanding of how it fits the rest of your life. Because of time constraints, we're now jumping directly from audience question to audience question. John Muniz asks, Many spiritual teachers and traditions have disparaged the role of intellectual development and book learning on the path of awakening. However, this person's a fan of yours and says, As, as you, Almas, you tried to combine the quest for spiritual awakening with the quest for mental understanding, I look up to you since you've managed to integrate those two domains. Can you speak about the positive contribution intellectual growth can make toward deepening one's relationship with reality, especially one's initial awakening? Most spiritual teaching, actually, they begin with some kind of intellectual understanding, which is learning what is the view, what is the perspective of the teaching. And it is good to have that. But you don't want to stop with that. You want to have the experience, not just the intellectual understanding. But you see, the question of the role of the intellect is a very big question. Because uh, it's, it's not whether you begin with intellectual understanding, which many teaching uh, subscribe to. It's some teaching, they think uh, the mind is a problem at some point, that you need to drop the mind because what you want is a direct, immediate experience uh, that is not constrained by the concept of the mind. And, and I think that is true. However, uh, the mind can develop too. The mind is not just one level, you see. It's not in, uh, the intellect. You know, I, I remember reading the Greek philosophy you know, some of the Greek philosophers, like Neoplatonists, they had 11 levels for, for intellect. 11. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, they had one in Proclus, I think. You know, one, what are uh, some of these levels? 
well, like the usual mind that we, usual intellect we have that we use for reasoning and whatever. And there is another intellect that uh, can have capacity for synthesis, you know. And then another the capacity of synthesis that does not depend on analysis. And then, then an intellect that is illuminated by light. And then there is an intellect that where uh, true intelligence, the prototype of intelligence, the platonic form of intelligence, pure intelligence, of spirit flows in the mind and so that that kind of intelligence usually people say a person is brilliant right when they say when they're smart why do they say that why do they say a person is brilliant why do they use the word brilliant do you ever think about it no why do they say brilliant because pure intelligence when you see it with the subtle sense, it looks like pure brilliance. Like, you know, the brilliance of light, it is brilliance without a color, just pure brilliance. And so a presence like of, of a palpable uh, substance of brilliance. And this brilliance, when you when, when I experience it, it feel like pure intelligence. It can flow through the mind, but also can flow through the body. So we can be physically intelligent and brilliant. We could be emotionally. So there is another, that's another level of intellect where, where it is open, where the true intelligence of, of spirit can uh, come through the understanding, the capacity for understanding. And I think that's why uh, Penrose, when he talks about, you know, about consciousness and what it is that is not uh, computational, whatever he uses, he he goes to and he said understanding cannot be is not a computational thing, but he he doesn't have he he knows that, but he doesn't exactly know what he knows, the way I see it in the sense he knows it is not computational, it is not analytic, that understanding is something that happens within us that brings out a new experience and new insights, but we don't know how, what did it, how it worked. Because, in, because he is, I think, he has that kind of brilliance flowing in him. He might not see it, but it is flowing in him. And, and, and um, so he said he's a materialist, he's not mystical, whatever. I think he is sort of, sort of a mystic with that sort of wanting, wanting to admit that there is that part of him, something in him, because by saying that understanding is not, not computational is already is a mystical insight. Because, but that is a level of intellect, that kind of understanding. When you say that he understands, but without knowing he understands, do you mean that when he's using in that argument that our mind is not computational because we understand an argument that has some Gerdelian argument that he uses the word understanding, but he doesn't understand what the word understanding means? Is that what you mean or is something different? No, he, he doesn't. No, I'm not saying he knows what understanding means. He just doesn't know why it is not computational. He, he doesn't have the... Uh, 
I mean, I don't know what to say. He doesn't. Ha- he he sort of has an intuition, I think, that understand. He he put three words. I remember consciousness, understanding, and and intelligence. He says those three are related, and and all of them are outside of the computational. I was watching one of your talks, and you were referring to "I am that I am," which is a statement from what God was saying when asked for His name, and then you related that to strength, knowing strength, or strength somehow to strength. Do you mind expounding? Well, I am, in the sense of say I am, which is known by many spiritual teachings, is to know one's, uh, the presence of one's uh, spirit or one's pure consciousness. And that, uh, which means the ontological uh, dimension of consciousness. It's ontology, not its uh, functionality, you see. Because most people know consciousness as a functional thing. I'm aware of this. I see that. But what is consciousness itself? Most people don't even think of that. When you know what consciousness is, that is its ontology, and that feels as some kind of presence. But that then, that is I am. However, the I am can appear in with different uh, qualities, can appear as pure, not just a pure presence of uh, just simply I am, but I am strength, meaning the the presence can manifest one of its uh, possibilities, which is pure strength or pure joy. One of the insights that I had during my episode, if we can call it that, and this was being told to me, is that if what I'm experiencing isn't loving, isn't somehow life-affirming, then see that as a sign that it's deception. So move toward what's loving and ground myself in other people and talk to them and so on. What do you make of that? Do you see that as having an element of truth? Yeah, I think, yeah. I will say... Is the truth and love tied? And if so, how? They're very much connected. Because truth is the, the essence of the heart and expresses itself as love. That's my experience of it. You see, truth is the essence of the heart and it expresses itself as love. So the expression of truth is love. Yeah. So if somebody is not loving, meaning they're not completely open in their heart. And the truth of who they are is not coming through. You had a phrase about that the mouth tastes what's material. So I'm butchering it, but the mouth tastes what's material and the heart tastes what's spiritual. Right. Well, that some teachings, like the Sufis, think of a spiritual insight, a spiritual knowledge as taste. But it is the taste of the heart. That the heart is the organ of spiritual taste. So the knowing of uh, spiritual matters, they think of it as the heart knowing, and, and it, they, they call it taste. And taste, you know, the Arabic word, dhuq, which means like when you sample something, you want to taste it. You know, taste sometimes means the capacity of taste, but sometimes taste this, right? So when you have a spiritual experience, you're tasting something. So the heart tastes that, that way. So it it, it, it gets to know the, the, the truth, the reality, the spiritual reality. 
So it's sometimes called taste, sometimes called touch, too. And not touch. At some point, I want to speak to Ken Wilber, perhaps in a few months when I'm strong enough to. And I know that Ken Wilber and you have agreements and disagreements, and I'm unsure of his model. But can you tell me where you both agree and disagree? Like, compare and contrast. Uh, it's be very hard for me to, to say that because I haven't been following his latest things, you know. I, I was following sure. him for some time. But it's it's not a, a agreement, disagreement. I remember at one time there was some disagreement some years ago when uh, I was um, putting out in some of my books that as uh, young children, we were in touch with our spiritual nature. And he disagreed with that. He thought, no, children oh. are like monsters. They're not in touch with their spiritual nature. <laughs> And I said, yeah, well, they can be monsters, but also they can be beautiful and wonderful and joyful and innocent and all of that. And these are spiritual qualities. That was, you know, this agreement we had at that time. And um, I don't know, at the present time, I mean, he, he is more of a philosopher, of a systematizer, of, uh, of you know, of ways of experience and knowing and life and all of that. And he's much more that way than I, I am. And I'm not engaged in things the same way he is. I think Ken will agree with me that self-reflection, a stage of development of humanity, and there is other stages like uh, immediate knowing. It sounds to me from what you said earlier about the human, actually, I don't know if this is from a talk, I believe this was from a talk about humans' infinite potential and that we are at a privileged place as humans because of our ability to self-reflect. And who else would know God if there were no humans? Let's assume that there are no other highly intelligent living yeah, creatures yeah, and I... so on. But that statement seems to agree with what Ken said. The reason is that if we go back to childhood, we have less self-reflective capabilities. Some people may say, much like you had the disagreement, that children can be closer to God in some ways. But then if we take that further, the less reflective cognitive capabilities that we have, the more we're like the worms and the beetles and so on. So the fact that we would say, or the fact that you said in the Human Infinite Potential Conference or talk, that we're at a privileged place seems to to me to indicate that actually, yes, we're somehow somewhere higher on the spiritual development scale than children. So that's why I'm saying that it sounds to me like you actually agree with Ken from what I understood of your lessons in that other lecture. Am well, I understanding that incorrectly? But but you're, you're, you're putting two things together that uh, I don't do, which you're talking about self-reflective capacity which is true, it's a development that human, human being has, and we don't have it as little babies. We don't have self-reflection. However, when you are in a realized place, the most realized condition is not self-reflective. does not reflect on itself, because when it reflects itself, there's nothing there. It, it can only look forward. But the point I wanted to say is that when I say children are in touch with spirituality, I don't mean they're self-reflective. I mean they're being. When, when they're happy, they are really happy. You see, the happiness is pure. And sometimes they're happy for no reason. They're just gurgling. And for me, that is a spiritual quality. 
They might not know it. They might not know they're happy. They know self-reflection. Self-reflection is actually is a good human quality. It's a necessary human quality. But at the same time, it is the beginning of ego. Without self-reflection, we won't have ego. You see? And self-reflection is, is important for spiritual practice in general, or even for inquiry, the way I do it. We do need to have self-reflection. But uh, self-reflection is one capacity that consciousness has. But, uh, but consciousness also can know itself without self-reflection, can know itself by being. That's that, that the English word gnosis comes from. You know, or noises, and the, the way the Greeks say it, is that I know myself by being myself. I'm not reflecting. It's like I'm in, in, in expanse, a medium of consciousness. And this medium, aware of itself on all points of itself. And it is this medium is speaking to you. So it doesn't need to reflect on itself. It sees through itself. It's a whole, the whole medium is, is not just within my body, it's outside of my body too. So that's not self-reflection, that is knowing by being, which is the, 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 the true spiritual capacity that people need to uh, develop to uh, have a realization. And that is actually what the Sufis are trying to refer to by talk about taste, because taste is more intimate than seeing, Taste something, it's, 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 you know, inside or taste or, or touch. It's, you, have, you have to touch, I mean, you're really Im immediate, you're more direct. And the same thing with taste is even more immediate. It's, it's inside you, you see, while seeing is over there, you see. So immediacy is a very important part of spiritual, all spiritual uh, experiences. There's no immediacy of experience, which means no, it's beyond self-reflection. It is not a spiritual experience yet. And then this question comes from Key Concrete 007. At 55, I've become reflective and decided to take DMT, not for recreational purposes, but to open my mind to fear and amazement. I've been an atheist all my life. At one point during my ayahuasca experience, I raised my hand skyward and said, God, forgive me. I'm no longer an atheist. My question, what are your thoughts on the controlled use of DMT or psychedelics in general? Uh, good question. I know these days many people are involved in using, you know, some of the substances to access spiritual realities. And in fact, there are, you know, some native um, teaching in different places where they use that. And um, I tried those when I was in college, LSD and things like that. And I had spiritual experiences and openings. And what uh, I remember from my experience, I did it several times, you know, in, in 60s and early 70s. But then after, when I started having spiritual experiences uh, on my own without them, I did not go back to the using those substances. And, and I was wondering about the other day, why didn't I, it's not like somebody told me don't do it or anything. It just dropped out of my mind. 
and, and now I'm not that interested, but I do hear about it from students, from other people that they experiment with these. And some of them have good experience. And especially for somebody who is find it difficult to access a spiritual dimension. It can, and can be, I see it uh, helping them. They, they do it once or twice. It opened them up in a way that they weren't being able to be open. And that way they saw something about themselves in reality they couldn't see before. And that is really helpful for their development and, and evolution. So I think that way, I've seen it being useful that way. I wouldn't recommend that somebody use it as their way of spiritual practice, unless they are part of some indigenous tribe and they have their own you know, way of dealing with it. I find many of the people who we were talking about earlier, who with a megaphone shout their toe out to other people in such a manner that doesn't have people welcoming their toe. They tend to have in common that their insights were precipitated by their private use of psychedelics. So do you see that psychedelics to inform one's philosophy or ontology, etc., as removed from a community is somehow a net negative in some manner or not as pure? Well, it's not that, you know, it's more like Comparing my experiences from the 60s and 70s on psychedelics from my later experiences, which happens more spontaneously, there is a difference in quality. It's not the same. The psychedelic gives it, changes things in some way that is not how reality is exactly. When experienced, you know, with one raw consciousness, and, and uh, it, it has the possibility of opening up, but it also opens up to other things that are not true, you know, it, because it also can magnify our imagination. And that's why people have bad trips, you know, <laughs> because it, it, it could magnify anything. So um, I, the way I think about it is that some traditions, like the ayahuasca tradition in South America, for instance, they have developed a way of working with it that they use it for, you know, as part of their spiritual practice. But I also seen some Americans who went there and did that, and they came back and their spiritual access naturally was got more narrow. Hmm, interesting. See, that goes back to what I was yeah. referring to earlier about path dependence. So some people would say, no, this yeah. lesson works and it works ubiquitously, yeah. but it also depends on where you are. One of the ways that I like to conceptualize this, I'm curious if, if you, I'm curious what your thoughts are, is that I see some Westerners taking on Eastern approaches and vice versa, somewhat uncritically. And I wonder if that's always a net benefit, because to me, it's akin to installing Maxoft force installing Mac software on your PC. You're going to get errors if it's not compatible with how you grew up, with what your view is right now. Do you see well, it similarly? I, I think that there there is a point there, Kurt, in the sense that the uh, the Eastern approach they have their own worldview, which is different from a Western world worldview. For instance. Um, 
both the Indian spirituality and Buddhist spirituality developed on being uh, free from samsara, right? What they call samsara, which is the ordinary world. And basically, because they believe in reincarnation, is that the idea is to not reincarnate again. That uh, you want to be enlightened so that you'll be free from this world and not come back again. And, and in the West, we don't subscribe to that kind of thing, you know, incarnation coming back or whatever. You know, for me, I don't know if that's true or not. See, so I don't look at spirituality that way. I, I, I look at, at spirituality that is to make life as complete, as deep as possible. And if that means something else for later, right? See, and so, so, yeah. So some people adopt the Eastern view with all the, their philosophical or uh, metaphysical perspective of reincarnation and um, and um, you know and leaving the world and which which has in it a way of saying that this world is is no good, it's just, you're here, you see, I, myself, I don't know, I mean, I'm, I don't know, I mean, I, I have some experiences of incarnation, whatever, I don't know if they're true or not, if they're real or not, and so I don't subscribe to that, so it's true, if somebody who's Western, who, who takes on that, like they're putting a hat on their, their brain, that is just a hat on them. It's not really uh, uh, naturally uh, arisen insight within them. But the spiritual. But however, if somebody takes the spiritual tradition and take the practices and learn to connect to the truth of who they are, and then that is independent of the worldview, because you're just what you are at this moment. What you are at this moment has nothing to do with the past or the future. So you're not thinking of all the, the you're free of the worldview, basically, any worldview. That way it could be useful, yes. And many, I think, have found it useful that way. Thank you, sir. Thank you for coming on to the program and answering these questions, spending some time with me. It's been fun, enjoyable talking together, Kurt. The podcast is now finished. If you'd like to support conversations like this, then do consider going to patreon.com slash C-U-R-T-J-A-I-M-U-N-G-A-L. That is Kurt Jaimungal. It's support from the patrons and from the sponsors that allow me to do this full time. Every dollar helps tremendously. Thank you.